Well, as we begin this church season of Lent, we're entering into this season of preparation, as I was telling the kids, and it's a preparation for the celebration of Easter. And, and Lent, in its earliest days, was a season that the church entered into um, in fasting and prayer uh, in preparation for the communicants who were joining the church and who were going to be baptized at Easter. Now, here's the thing about church calendar observances. If you make them obligatory, um, if they're obligations, it's very easy for a season like this and practices like this to become legalistic, to become burdensome and utilitarian and oppressing. And I think, though, that the recognition of Lent is helpful if you recognize it as a season Um, seasons bring together a rhythm to our life um, and to our experience. And the world has lots to say to us about how it is that we move through time. Most of the seasons that we experience and live through are seasons that are governed by our recreations, our entertainments, We're getting ready to enter into Michael's favorite season, um, which is March Madness, right? You can just, you know, he just gets all happy um, during March Madness. But then, you know, you also have bowl season, right? You have have opening day, that's coming up, that begins a season. You have, in January, you have the, the, um, the awards season where all the televised awards are going on. Um, You have vacation season, you know, in the summer. And I don't have an issue with any of those things, but I do want us to not miss an opportunity to know that the way in which we experience time and move through seasons shapes us, the sorts of things that we're looking for and toward. And we can actually not allow time to be something that merely passes and, you know, we just kind of run through and you know, respond to our recreations or our entertainments or live those out. But we can actually take time and make it and use it uh, to help us in our discipleship as we walk through the life that the Lord has called us to. So the season of Lent is a, the, it's in the spring, and that's actually just what the word means. It's an Anglo-Saxon word which means spring. And spring, I think, is a time for marching. That's actually where we get march from. Um, It's a time, you know, in the spring when kings go off to war, right? Marching is the time. It's when the trees come alive. If you remember what happened in Macbeth, um, the trees kind of showed up and and defeated uh, the armies of Macbeth. So March, right, it, 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 it's the season in the spring, and it's a time that is well-suited, I think, for pilgrimage. And as we're walking through the season to Jerusalem into Passion Week, as we follow Jesus through his last days and we celebrate his resurrection, I want us to think about the sorts of prayers that people who are on pilgrimage pray. Um, as we're walking the way of Jesus... How is it that we pray ourselves along? And we started out Wednesday on uh, Ash Wednesday with Psalm 120, which is a prayer for starting out. It's a prayer of beginnings. 
And today we're going to continue another prayer by those who, are, who, are, uh, who have embarked on the pilgrimage life of following God. And that is the prayer of confession. And as a guide and a model of confession, we're going to look at Psalm 32. And in that, we're going to be looking at the gift of confession, the place of confession, and the heart of confession. And as Joshua Elliott comes forward to read Psalm 32 for us, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word, and Lord, we uh, want to say we are listening. But Lord, we need you to unstop ears, to soften hearts, um, to still restless minds and hearts so that we might um, hear you speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us new life so that we might respond to what it is that you say. And uh, Lord, doing that, uh, we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon text this morning is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. Thank you, Joshua. All right, so firstly, let's look at the gift of confession. Without confession, there is no forgiveness. There is no blessing. The the admission of fault, of wrong, of failure, of sin is a doorway into blessing. The blessing of forgiveness provides strength. When the psalmist speaks of his bones wasting away, he's speaking of the character traits are the qualities of integrity, right? of stability. Firm bones are a metaphor for firm resolve and strength. And those who have the gift of forgiveness are those who will, in the end, stand. But with forgiveness, there is also relief. David's groaning is the pain of his conscience, of his guilty conscience. His his guilty conscience finds 
its expression in a constant vocalization of his sorrow for which there is no worldly relief. But for the one who is forgiven, there is a lightness. The heavy hand of the Lord's discipline and of a guilty conscience, right, it's removed and taken away and there is something like renewal that takes place in the heart of the believer, the one who is trusting. And unlike the dried up springs of summer, the, the burnt brown grass of July's and August dog days, you remember what that's like? It's hard to remember with the ground so mushy right now, but there's going to be a come a time in which you walk across your yard and it's going to crunch. And it's not because of snow, right? The picture of the heart there, right? With, with forgiveness, there's vitality and strength and new life. So with forgiveness, there is blessing. Right? With, with covered sin and the uncounted sin, right, comes this strength and this relief. But there's more. Not only is... Not only um, are the forgiven blessed, but there is the blessed gift of the awareness of sin. Have you ever thought of that? That you're actually blessed by an awareness of your sin? Right? Some of you, you speak of your sensitive conscience um, as if it were merely a weakness, a liability to carry with you. Like the person who says, I'm the sort of person that if I ever do anything wrong, guess what happens? I always get caught. Right? You talk of that as if it's a liability, but that too is a blessing. They're gifts. Right? Without a sensitive conscience and without an awareness of sin, there's going to be no seeking of forgiveness. There's going to be no confession. Right? It would only be bad if there was no possibility of reconciliation or relief, if there were no forgiveness. But you actually have more opportunity for joy and life because not only are those who are blessed whose sins are covered, but blessed is the one who knows that they need forgiveness and that it's available. Right? That's a blessing. And that's deep wisdom. So think of confession this way. Confession, confession is choosing to hide with the Lord rather than to hide yourself. Hiding yourself is an attempt to cover yourself and it mirrors the response of Adam and Eve who sought to cover themselves. Shame that's caused by sin, it, it just begs for covering. It seeks covering. And if we're left to ourselves, right, we'll just cover ourselves with more sin. Right? We'll, we'll work more deceit into our sin as we seek to hide. And even worse, we'll try and hide our sin by good works. That's even a worse place to be. Unconfessed sin, it seeks relief. And if it remains unconfessed, it relies on deception. It relies on you lying. And it leads to your strength dissipating and wasting away. It, it vocalizes itself by groans that will re remain unrelieved 
and will become an ongoing burden in life as one's vitality dries up in death. That's what unconfessed sin does. But blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Right? Not by the self, but by the Lord who covers the shame and makes payment for it. The sinner who comes out into the open comes clean, as it were. In confession, we acknowledge the sin. We confess our overstepping. We may not count confession as something that's a gift, but the opportunity to confess and to be rid of sin and its guilt is a gift. Right? That we have a God who is gracious and forgiving is not our right and privilege, but it is a precious gift of his kindness. So, confession, right? Confession, then it, it moves us forward and brings us to a place, and that's the place of confession. And there's an irony there, right? It's the godly, the irony is it's the godly who offer prayers of confession. Now, the irony is this. I thought the godly were the people who were already doing right and wouldn't need to confess their sin. Right? That's what we think. Is the goal is to be in a place where you won't have to ask for forgiveness. But that's not the case. That's the beautiful thing about the Psalms is that the Psalms are real medicine for real people. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We continue to do so. Godliness, your godliness, right? Your, what you do that the quality of your character is not something that uh, it is brought about by your independent moral perfection. That's not godliness. Godliness is reflecting the character of God in our own character and actions. And what is that? What is godliness? What is God like? It's meekness and humility, compassion, mercy, the truth, sincerity, reasonableness, honesty. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, these are the blessed and the godly. Rather than hiding behind fig leaves, the fig leaves of reputation, of performance, of what you have, your money, your possessions, your imagined reputation, your imagined power and influence, hiding from what you've done or what you may get caught doing. Right? The godly hide in the Lord. They rush from the reach of the flood to where the Lord may be found. Right? The Lord is the sinner's hiding place. And that's what makes him godly, or her godly. And, you know, without that godliness, you know, without the gift of that work of repentance and faith in the life of the believer, they wouldn't seek the Lord to begin with. Right, so in, in hiding in the Lord, in this hiding place that we find in the Lord, there's no shyness or skulking or shame Rather, what happens is that the groaning gives way to shouts of deliverance. 
And the vocalization isn't one merely of relief. It isn't just the sigh of relief. It is stopping what you're doing, rushing out into the streets, shouting out your front door, honking car horns, right? Tears of happiness. It's a shout. Right? This is the place where those who have learned to pray the prayer of confession are brought to shouts of joy. You know, what would it be like if in this service, after our morning prayer of confession and the words of assurance and pardon, we joined in with shouts of deliverance? That may not sound very Presbyterian, but it sounds very biblical. Right? What if, what if you heard those words and received them and that they just impelled you to stand up and to shout and to rejoice? Right, the place of confession takes a sinner from danger and brings them into a place of safe refuge. They've, they've been brought out of the slimy pit and they've had their feet set upon the rock. They've passed through the valley of the shadow of death out in, and brought into a broad and spacious place. True confession is evidence of a God-reliant faith where... <laughs> In your choices, right, the things that you imagine, um, the choice is where else would I go? Where else and to whom else would I go? You're brought to that place to return to God and to seek him. Thirdly, right, the gift and the place of confession speaks to the heart of confession, David here in, in the psalm serves for us and serves us as a mentor. He draws us in and he speaks comfortingly and directly. He says, I will instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He says, I'm going to tell you how to walk through confession. Confession is a core competency of a Christian. It's something that you should practice and be good at. A person who is living a godly spiritual life is a person who is a good confessor, one who confesses. Now, there's a, there's a problem, though. It, we need training in it. And why is that? Because it's possible for us to speak words of confession and to have a heart that's far removed from the humility and dependence that confession is intended uh, to demonstrate. Right? Confession, like so many things that we do, so many things that we practice, is something that we can do what is called pro forma. You hear that? Pro forma. That is things that are done for a formality. Being formal is something that's not bad. It's okay. It's good in many situations for you to be formal. It's a way in which you show honor and respect to another person. It, it confers dignity when you are formal. But doing something formal without the heart that desires not to honor the person that you're performing that activity before is actually disrespectful. It's empty and hollow. David says, right, he gathers us together and he says, let's confess our sin and I'm going to stand with you here and help you. So this pro forma tendency of confessing because that's what good, sinless people like me do in order to show 
other sinless people, right, who are good, doing good things, that I'm not a bad person. That's the constant temptation. And not only that, you can be tempted to do things because you're being made to do those things, like a horse or a mule. You have no understanding, and you're being made to confess. And we're not to confess like that. Because confession is to be offered freely. Now here's a question. In a court of law, how will a judge or a jury view what is called a coerced confession? It's not valid, is it? It's meaningless. If you force a confession, right, the person who... Uh, is confessing, is really trying to relieve the circumstances in which they are in. They're not really speaking the truth. Uh, Maybe they're speaking the confession because they've got caught and are trying to mitigate against the consequences of what it is that they've been caught doing. Um, A forced confession uh, is insincere. And though for the person who actually is guilty... um, It may be an admission, but it's not evidence of a heart that actually desires to be reconciled. Right? It doesn't doesn't recognize or it's not the fruit of a heart that wants forgiveness. The the person who offers a quick confession um, because of the circumstances they got caught, they're trying to get away or um, get out of circumstances which they're having to face, that person is a person who just wants to be left alone and to be able to get on with what it is that they want to do. Now here's, so that's one, right? A confession has to be free. The second thing is, consider this, if you withhold details in your confession to make your sin more easily excusable, is that confessing with the right heart? No. The reason is, is because a confession should be offered freely. It should be offered fully. A full confession is what makes clear to all that you earnestly desire reconciliation. And it further demonstrates that you are aware that what you have done, what you have done has caused harm and has wounded the other person. And as you consider, right, your confessing, I want you to remember those two words, right? That a true confession is full and free. It it tells everything, and it does so willingly, right? Because in doing so, you know, or say if you don't do so, it can be tricky um, because we can be so easily self-deceived by our sin, And this is why David is standing with us, because I think we need something like a doula, right? A midwife to help us in our restoration as we confess. And what does the the doula do? They They assist in bringing about delivery. And that's what we're after. We want deliverance, right? And what we want birthed is new creation, new life. David says, I'm going to counsel you and I'm going to watch you 
Because confession must be done with the right heart. Otherwise, the sorrow will be increasing and increasing and lead to more sorrow. So not only do we have to confess with the right heart, um, it's important for us to also see the heart of the one to whom we are confessing. For the one who trusts in the Lord, there is the surrounding steadfast love of the Lord. There, there is love that is enveloping, enfolding, fortifying, and inspiring. Right? It's confidence-giving. It is growing. It's the covenantal Lord, love of the Lord who himself pays the price of our covenant faithlessness. Right? This is the God to whom we're confessing. And this is the blessing that we experience, that the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. That's where we're getting. That's where we're headed. That's what we want. So for the one who confesses and is forgiven, right, there is relief, there's strength, there's lightness, there's vitality. There's an awareness of the unfolding love of the Lord, and in the end, the blessed of the Lord are glad. They rejoice with shouts of joy because the gift of confession coupled with the heart of faith not merely brings about relief, but it brings about forgiveness. It gives birth to the vindication of our faith and to righteousness. Remember this, that the Lord declares and imputes his rightness to those who turn and trust to him, right? They, he gives to us his righteousness. It's not merely a wiping away of the slate, right? Getting it clean, getting the record or the account balance back to zero by paying the debt so that now we can get on with life and hopefully end with a little bit of money in the credit side. God fills up our account with his righteousness, And as a consequence, no accusation can be laid at your feet or brought to you. No condemnation rests over your head or swings over your head. No fear is there. You know, for David, this was all personally experienced as he received it. He worked this out in his life. But we get to see something more. Our sin deliverance is something that has been embodied by the Son of God who has become our advocate and our redeemer. He has secured that righteousness for us. If there's a way for you to think about Psalm 32, you can think about it as the Romans 5 of the Old Testament. And what does Romans 5 say? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 